The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Let me pray for us before we jump into scripture together this morning. God, we do thank you. Um, I thank you for the generosity of this church in rising up very quickly to meet the need um, to provide supplies for these kids. And we pray that, that it would help open their heart, that it would be just a part of their faith journey and the journey of their family to see the love of Jesus, that you would use our small acts of love to ultimately soften their hearts to the gospel. God, as we think of school supplies, we're reminded that school season has just started. And so I pray this morning, I pray for our teachers who are part of our church. God, you've placed them in a profound way in classrooms just to have a, a big impact on the lives of children. And so whether they're in public or in private or homeschool settings, God, I ask that you would help them to live out the gospel where you've placed them. And that through their lives, that kids would see and know who Jesus is and the love that he has for them. God, I pray for all of our kids who are back in school, from youngest in kindergarten, first grade, all the way through high school and college. God, I pray that you would help them to see what it looks like to represent you well at the school that you have placed them at. And that they would be salt and light in the midst of their friends and in the midst of their sports teams and all the other opportunities they have. And that through their witness, that the gospel would go forth. God, we pray that you'd be with us now as we open scripture. Would you speak to us today? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5. We are working our way through. We actually wrap up the book of 1 Peter next Sunday as we've been journeying through it this summer. Um, so feel free to open it there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible or choose to just use it, it's on the text, um, it's on the handout that you received when you came this morning as well. A huge thanks to Ben and our team has been preached through uh, for the end of 1 Peter 4 last week as we continued. And I was actually out of town. Um, I was back in Chicago where I'd lived for 17 years and I was officiating a wedding. And it was kind of fun for two reasons. One, it was a former student of mine that I've known since she was in junior high. She's now in her, I think, late 20s. That makes me feel old. Um, but it was, it was a lot of fun. But it was also was the first time that I've gotten to officiate a wedding that my daughter has been in as well. She was the flower girl in the wedding. And I was really nervous because she's just a little over two she doesn't exactly know all of what's going on, right? And so, so she was standing in the back. The doors were open. She kind of hesitated, and then she saw me. She forgot about the basket. She forgot about the flower petals, and she just ran straight down the aisle right for dad. <laughs> I was like, I don't care about the flower petals. Come to me, kid. So it was, uh, it was a lot of fun, um, and it was a, a fun time to be there. It also just was, was rich for me just to get to connect with friends and, and colleagues that I got to work with for a long time and just have a lot of relationships with there. One of the one of the people I was able to connect with has been a good friend of mine for a long time. I was in my early 20s when he actually started serving with me. He was 19, I think I was like 24. Um, and we've both kind of served in ministry alongside each other and now in different contexts for over a decade. Um, it's interesting, we, we realized as we were hanging out, we're no longer young, immature 20-year-olds doing this, right? We may still be immature, we're just now in our 30s doing this, we're not little kids anymore. And, and it's interesting, you know, because God has put both of us in different positions, and as we just got to talking about leadership and church and just the difficulties, the good, the bad, the struggles, the challenges that we face, it was interesting because we both were just reflecting on how leadership, while it's a good thing and a necessary thing, especially within the church, Leadership comes with a lot of challenges and hardships. 
And you know that if you run a business or you're in a position as a manager and have people report to you that leadership, while sometimes it may be seen as this great thing, suddenly you have people underneath you and they look to you for guidance and how to get them together as a team. And we were, you know, I was kind of laughing because it's not like this guy and I, it's not like we're uneducated and he didn't go to school for it. We both have master's degrees. He actually just finished his PhD dissertation on the church. And he's like, I don't know how to do this right? Like it, it, leadership is a hard and challenging thing. And it's this idea of what does godly church leadership and how does that help? And what is our response as a whole church to this kind of leadership is to this that Peter now turns in the book of First Peter, starting this morning in chapter five, verse one. And this morning, we're going to look as he walks through this three keys to a healthy church. What kind of leadership does God call us to in the local church? Verse one says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. The first key to a healthy church are elders who lead like shepherds. Elders who lead in the church, but they lead like shepherds. Peter had hinted that he was about to turn to the context of the church in the passage before. In chapter 4, verse 17, he said, it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. So that's where his mind is thinking. And so he he exhorts the fellow elders. Now, it's interesting here that Peter doesn't go to his title as an apostle or as one of the disciples of Jesus, but he appeals to them as, hey, I'm right here with you. I'm a fellow elder of a church. I know the challenges. I know the struggles, the hardships that you may face in the task that God has called you to. And he reminds them right at the outset that Jesus, that he is a witness to Jesus's suffering as well as the partaking of the glory that is going to come. It's this model that we see throughout the book of 1 Peter, that just as Jesus suffered, so too as followers of Jesus, we are called in life to suffer for him. And that life will include hardship and difficulty. But just as Jesus is now glorified as his followers, we have that confidence, not a maybe someday, but this total confidence that because of our relationship to him, we too will partake in the same glory that Jesus has. And he encourages them with this. And then he says in verse two, to shepherd the flock of God to shepherd the flock. Now, this idea of, of a sheep and shepherds has already been present within actually the book of 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 25, he says this, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This idea of, of, she- of sheep and of shepherding actually has a deep history throughout all of the Old and the New Testament on what it looks like to lead God's people. Israel's spiritual leaders were often called shepherds in the Old Testament, specifically examples would be such as in Ezekiel chapter 34 or in Jeremiah chapter 23. After Jesus had died and rose from the dead, he met with Peter and his disciples. Peter was the one who had denied him, this Peter who had denied Jesus three times. And he asked him the question over and over again, three times, do you love me? And upon Peter saying yes, what did Jesus say in reply? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep. See, what what does this kind of shepherding leadership look like that Peter calls the the elders here to and that we see throughout scripture? Well, to lead like a shepherd is an others-focused leadership. 
It's leadership that is focused on the needs of others. And in this context, the shepherd is not concerned about their comfort, their safety, what they want. Their entire focus is on the sheep and how the sheep are and are the sheep secure and are the sheep where they need to be. So likewise, when God calls elders to lead like shepherds, he's saying your leadership is not what do I want, but what does the church need? It's this others-focused leadership. In Ezekiel chapter 34, we see the leaders of Israel um, indicted for not shepherding this way. It says this in Ezekiel 34, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, uh, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up. The frayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. See, these elders, these leaders of Israel were indicted for self-focused, self-centered leadership. And when God calls on elders to lead like a shepherd, he's saying your focus is not on yourself, but your focus is outward. What is the need of the church? What are the needs of others? And that drives our leadership. In short, you could say leading like a shepherd is leadership that strives to lead like Jesus. Leading like a shepherd is leadership that strives to lead like Jesus. Because if you know throughout scripture, this idea of a sheep and a shepherd is not just of leaders to people, but it's of God to his children as well. Psalm chapter 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Jesus in the gospel of John chapter 10 said this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And even in this context, we are reminded this again of leaders called the shepherd, but who is the true shepherd? Who is the shepherd over everyone, including even those who are elders? Well, verse four says this in chapter five, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This hope that we have is when, when this chief shepherd clearly here speaking of Jesus, when he comes. It's a reminder that as elders, as leaders in the church, you may have some semblance of authority, but ultimately every single person is under the authority of Jesus. And all of us are called to submit our lives to him, regardless of the spiritual authority that God has placed on us for this time and in this season. Elders, yes, have some leadership responsibility, but we are all under the chief shepherd, who is Jesus The reality is, and what Peter makes sure to remind the elders of, and we need to remind ourselves of constantly, is that this church is not my church. It's not the pastor's church. This church is not the elder's church. This church is Jesus's church. And we submit ultimately to him. He is our authority. We submit every single one of us, no matter how low or how high, what title we have, we are to submit ourselves to him. He is the chief shepherd before we all follow his lead. And so all of us are to be in submission to Jesus as the chief shepherd. And then those who have leadership, um, leadership roles, our model for leadership is to lead like Jesus himself, to lead like a shepherd, looking to the needs of others, not to our own. He, got, he dives into this in more detail in verses two and three. It says this, shepherd the flock of God, 
that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. The second key to a healthy church are leaders who have proper motives. Leaders who have proper motives. What, what Peter is going here is to the heart behind why someone would, would go after authority, why someone would want to be an elder or a pastor, a leader within a local church setting, to, to exercise their oversight that they would have over the church in which they are. And he gives you three different, three different sections there. They all start with not like this, but instead like this. The first one we see is that leaders are not under compulsion, but they are willing. That, that elders who have proper motives lead willingly, not under compulsion. What he's saying here is that, that there must be, for someone to function as an elder, as a leader in the church, a God-given call to leadership. No one should be strong-armed and in a position of leadership in a church because they felt like they had to or someone made them do it. But it's the desire that God has placed within their own hearts. Excuse me, Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 3. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. There's this God-given desire and aspiration within their hearts to lead in a way that God would have them. Now remember, the book of 1 Peter, as we've been going through it, if you've been journeying with us this summer, so much of it is how do we live for God in an unbelieving world? And specifically the last three weeks, they've been very similar to the sermons because Peter has hit hard at the end of chapter three and all of chapter four, what it looks like to live for Jesus in suffering and in pain. He's hit it hard in chapter three and chapter four. What does it look like? And so remember this, what he's, why he's encouraging these elders in this way is he's saying, hey, if suffering comes to every single Christian in a non-Christian world for how you live, for what you stand for, then it will certainly come to those of you who are in church leadership as well. In fact, it may come harder on you than it does to others because of the role that God calls them to. He's saying this, if, if you're just serving because you feel like you need to, what are you gonna do when time gets tough? What are you gonna do when you undergo suffering and persecution? You're gonna be like, I'm out. Like, I don't, I don't need this anymore. Like, I'm done. What sustains you through hard times in leadership as you undergo suffering is that you know that God has called you to this. Now, I know this is true for me, and if you were to talk to, I'm sure, the pastors here and the elders at our church, they would agree that this is true for them as well. Now, there's, there's two things that are both simultaneously true at the same time. Being a pastor is one of the most rewarding and great experiences that I could ever have in life. Being a pastor is one of the hardest and intense, painful suffering that I could ever have in life as well. Both of those are true. And there's been times in my life where I've gotten enough emails or I've gotten the phone call or there's things have happened that I've been tempted to be like, you know what? I don't need this anymore. I can make a living somehow else. I, I don't need this anymore. But what sustains in those periods where hardship is coming into life, where suffering is coming is saying, you know what? But I know that God has called me to this. I'm not a pastor because someone twisted my arm and made me do it. It's something that I feel God has called me to. And as leaders in the church, we need to lead because God has called us to, not because someone has made us. So we lead willingly. 
The second part that he says there is it's not for shameful gain, but eagerly. That those who, who are leaders should lead eagerly and not for shameful gain. What shameful gain is there that Peter's addressing? Well, what would it be in their context and what would it, could, could it be in our context today? Well, one that is true for them and for us today, what shameful gain is there? Well, first there could be the shameful gain of using money from the church to your own advantage. Oftentimes when this word shameful gain is used throughout the New Testament, it's in improper use of money. And he's saying, you, because you're in a leadership role, you maybe have access to certain things that you could use to your own advantage, but you should not do that. That's why in 1 Timothy, in the qualifications for elders, he says that elders should not be lovers of money, that we must guard ourselves against this. There was this temptation there for them to misuse funds. Now, one of the ways that, that we've set this up at our church to help safeguard against this so that leadership doesn't improperly use funds is a few simple things. First is I'm one of our elders. By the way, there's five elders at our church. I'm one of them. The other four are not paid to be on our elder board. If you're wondering who they are, you can go look at our website. You can also, it's the men who pray as we take communion every month. Those are the men who rotate through. None of them are paid for what they do. They, pay, they give hours and hours and hours out of their weeks and months of their lives, especially in the season of transition when we're in between senior pastors. They gave hours and hours of the time and they received zero compensation for it. My compensation as a senior pastor and as an elder is entirely determined by the other elders. I literally get kicked out of the room when they talk about me. All right, I'm not there being like, oh, no, no, you got to pay me. Nope. I'm like, I don't even, this is entirely for you. I don't want to know. I don't want to be a part of the conversation. It is whatever you guys decide for me. Not only that, but if you needed money from Morgan Hill Bible Church, say we owed you something and needed a check, don't come talk to me because I can't even sign a check on behalf of our church. It's just one of the checks and balances that we have in place. Now, it's not that I don't trust myself, but it's just a safety for myself and for other leaders who would come after that I don't have access to anything that sits in the bank. I can't just go and use it, and neither can our elders as well or anyone who's a part of our staff. So we want to guard ourselves against this temptation to use the money of the church for our own selfish reasons. So money was one that could have been used for shameful gain. Two more that I think maybe could have been true back then, but are especially true now, is a shameful gain for church leadership would be the position of power. Some people are drawn to authority, to power. And if you aspire to leadership within the church, simply so you have authority over other people or power over other people, you are not qualified for church leadership. The motive of an elder, the motive of a leader within the church is not to have power over others. Now, one of the ways that, that we guard against this at our church is we have a plurality of elders. It's, it's in our constitution that we have to have multiple elders at the same time. It cannot ever be only myself. There always has to be a plurality of elders. Now, what this is, is that even as myself, as the lead pastor, I have limits. I am, as far as the elder is concerned, I am just one of them. There are five of us right now. And if four of them say one thing and I say, well, what about this? I want to do it this way. Well, guess who gets to go? It's them. It's not me. I have one of five. I am not the majority. I am accountable and I submit myself to them. Now, if you are from healthy churches that have a plurality of elders like this, you're like, what's the big deal? That's entirely normal. 
Well, if you're from churches that don't have healthy leadership like this, that have one person who can dominate and have control over everyone, or if you listen to certain podcasts that highlight certain churches that are set up in this way where one person can do whatever they want to do, you'll realize the downfall that can come when one person has all of the power and authority. I know of churches that had a senior pastor who appointed elders at his church, but how it was set up was that the senior pastor reserved 51% of the vote of the elders were his. What does that mean? They're just here to have a semblance of accountability, but there's actually no accountability at all. The senior pastor could do whatever he wanted to do. See, elders don't seek leadership for power, but are accountable to one another. And if you find yourself in a church where there is zero accountability for church leadership, zero accountability for a pastor, be very, very careful. Because accountability is a good thing. It protects us from our own sinful selves and protects us from some of the things that we could do, even if we don't mean to. So be cautious of churches where leadership doesn't have true accountability. Sometimes systems will set up to look like accountability, but it isn't actually that. So power can be one of those things that churches use or pastors use for shameful gain. A third kind of shameful gain that we see, and this is especially true in our world today, is the shameful gain of celebrity. The the shameful gain of celebrity. The pastors will use their platforms, use their churches that they are given for the primary purpose or one of the primary purposes of promoting themselves. This is true in our social media brand conscious brand conscious world. Now, a word of warning here. And, and we, we have to make sure we're on the same page. Not every large church, not every pastor who has a large influence is guilty of trying to be a celebrity, All right? Some of you have been a part of in your life of churches that are very large churches where the pastors have been great men and women of God and served humbly and faithfully for many years. And myself, in my background, I know this to be true as well. It's too easy sometimes, depending on where we come from, to be like, well, if a church has this many people, then the pastor is bad. But if a church is under this size of people, then it's okay. Well, no, my, my own personal experience, when I was 22, I was hired at a youth, as a youth pastor at a mega church. Thousands of people came every single Sunday. And my first, I believe it was eight years as a pastor there, we were led by the senior pastor at the time. His name was Erwin Lutzer. Now, you may not know who that is, but in certain Christian circles, he is very prominent and well-known. He had three radio programs. For those of you who are young, that's like before podcasts existed. That's how people got stuff, all right? He had radio programs. He's written over 50 books, published author, award-winning, travels the world, speaking at conferences, pastor of a huge megachurch. And if I were still to this day, who was one of the most humble and gracious people that I have ever met in my life? It's him. Now, God blessed him with a huge platform and the ability to proclaim the gospel. So just because someone has a large platform doesn't mean they are obsessed or celebrity focused. So how do we spot this? It can't just be like, well, if your church is this big, so how do we spot this? I think one one of the questions that we should ask when we see leaders who are becoming famous, becoming well-known, is do they care more about their public image or the impact of the gospel on people's lives? Do they care more about their public image, how they're perceived, how they look, how they come across, or do they care more about the impact of the gospel on people's lives? Because if they're leading like a shepherd, their focus is not on themselves, it's on others and how the gospel is going forth into others. Another way that we can spot this idea of celebrity 
is do they empower and celebrate others or do they always turn the spotlight back on themselves? See, godly leadership and someone who leads like a shepherd is constantly pulling others up, pushing the spotlight off of themselves and onto the good work that others are doing, where a celebrity leader would take anything good and shine the spotlight right back on themselves to highlight and promote themselves. And so as leaders in a church, we're not to be doing so for shameful gain. Thirdly, he says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Living our lives, our lives, we are exemplary leaders, not holding power closely, but we allow our lives to help lead others. When reading this, I was reminded of Jesus's words in Matthew chapter 20. He says this, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Elders are to lead with the examples of their lives. Now I wanna be clear in case you don't know any of our elders, in case you haven't talked to me much, elders are not perfect. We struggle with sin. We don't have perfect marriages. We don't have perfect families. We are far from perfect. And the five of us who are elders will be the first ones to tell you that, especially about the other ones. Right, Roy? Right? Yeah. We are far from perfect. But what God calls with his elders is, is those to be who have grown in spiritual maturity in their lives. Not that you can look at myself or any of our elders and say, oh, that person's perfect. That's what I want to be like someday. But it's this idea that there needs to be a semblance, a good semblance of spiritual maturity and growth in the Lord in their life. It's why other places in scripture warn that an elder shouldn't be a new believer because they haven't had time to grow into that relationship with God. Now, it's, it's amazing when you look at passages like this in 1 Peter 5. The other two passages in the New Testament that highlight the role of elders are in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. If you're not familiar with them, I encourage you to go and look them up. It's amazing when the Bible talks about the leadership that God has called to the church, what it consistently highlights over and over and over again is the character of those who lead. The character, this is the kind of people they should be. What is talked about very little is the skill set, is the competency, is the craft of how good they communicate. What happens too often in our world, why so many pastors, why we've seen the crash of so many celebrity pastors in our world, is that we see people with all the gifting. Because man, some people just have this natural ability to communicate and they have this, this charisma and this personality. And it's like, yeah, but if you look at their life, they're like not faithful to their wife, they're stealing money, but who cares? They can talk, great, get them on a platform, get them going. But the problem with that is if we don't develop our character, but we only focus on our competency as our gifting, we will fall. It's just a matter of time. And so if you aspire to any sort of leadership position, especially in the church someday, focus on your character. Godly character is what qualifies spiritual leadership, not the amazingness of your gifting, not how talented you are, but it's character that is the root of those who God chooses to use and lead his church. And that's what these passages focus so much on. Well, his focus goes in these verses from focusing primarily on elders, and now it broadens to all of us in chapter five, verse five. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, 
with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The third key to a healthy church is everyone possessing a humble heart. Everyone possessing a humble heart. Humility in every single one of us, from the leaders to every single one, having this God-given sense of humility about themselves. He starts by saying, those of you who are younger, now he's using here a play on words because he's been talking about elders who have this leadership position in the church. And so by younger, what he's not saying is just those of you who are younger than the elders. For those of you who thought this verse didn't apply because you're older than me, I'm sorry, it still applies to you, all right? What he's saying is those of you who are younger in standing, basically who are not elders within the church, be subject to the elders, be in submission. This is a phrase that Peter's used regularly. If you look back at chapter two and three, it talks about our submission to authorities, about our submission to masters, about submission in marriage. See, what, what Peter is saying is a measure of your spiritual maturity is how you respond to the authority that God has placed in your life. A measure of maturity is how we as Christians respond to the authority that God places because all of us have authority over us and how we respond to that is a measure of our spiritual maturity. And as he encourages us to submit, he says, clothe yourselves. What he means is this should be a defining characteristic for you as a Christian. Just as obvious as it is, as the color of shirt you are wearing is when people encounter you as a Christian, they should see humility flowing from your life. Humility flowing from you. Why? Because God opposes the proud. He's pulling here from Proverbs chapter three, direct quote. God is in opposition to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility is to be a defining characteristic in the life of the believer. I remember reading a book many years ago by a Puritan pastor, and he said this, it is a contradiction in terms to be a Christian and to not be humble. It is a contradiction in terms to be a Christian and to not be humble. And, and it comes across so clearly in passages like this. Man, how, how does Peter say humility is so important? Because this is the thing. Humility is the necessary and natural result of salvation. Humility is the necessary and natural result of our salvation. Let me put it this way. You cannot understand the sin in your life, the depravity that is within you and the holiness of God. You cannot see, man, I am a sinner deserving of nothing. God is perfectly holy and pure. And then you cannot understand, okay, God in his holiness and purity was motivated by love for me in my sin, in my mess. God was motivated by love that he sent his son to die for me in my sin. And that the grace that flows from God's heart is nothing because of me, but entirely because of God and what he's done for me. Not only that, but when I believe and receive in this grace, I'm adopted into the family of God and I'm a part of his family forever. No one can see their sin, God's love, God's grace, and think to themselves, wow, I am a really big deal. It's impossible if you have actually understood your sin and God's grace and love towards you. It has to humble you because you aren't deserving of anything that God has done for you. You are a sinner saved by grace alone. God loves you in your sin, not after you've cleaned yourself up. We are humbled when we see who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. So how is this humility 
This humility towards one another that he talks about here, how how is this seen in the context of the church? Because that's where he's writing, right? Be subject to your elders. How is this kind of humility seen in our relationship to the church and to to church leadership? A few quick ways for us in closing. First is this, don't complain if there's something at church you don't like. Don't complain if there's something at church you don't like. Now, what I mean by that is this. I'm not saying never to speak up. I'm not saying never to ask questions, never to voice your concerns. But there will be some weeks where Caleb will pick some songs and he will play them very well. And you will sit there and be like, I don't really like that song. There'll be some weeks that myself or one of our other pastors will get up here and we'll preach a sermon and you'll be sitting there and you'll be like, this doesn't really apply to me or where I am in life. And as a humble follower of Jesus, as a humble part of your church, you'll sit there and be like, and that's okay. Because I may not like this song, but maybe someone else needs to hear it and is blessed by it. This sermon may not be where I am in life and it may not be much that I can put to use, but someone else here needs to hear this. And God has a word for them, even if it's not what I need to hear today. Humility takes the focus off of ourselves and says, hey, even if I can't benefit from this, someone else here can. And we're willing to say, hey, I don't, I don't like everything that happens at our church, but that's, that's okay. Because it's not just about me. It's not just about what I want or what I need. The second way humility can be seen in the church is, is that we have a default attitude of trust in those who God has placed over us. A default attitude of trust. Now, I want to be clear here. I'm not saying that you never ask questions. I'm not saying that you never disagree. I'm not saying that you don't push back. The elders want to hear from you. We want, we are open to meet with you anytime. Myself, any of our pastors, any of our elders, anytime. We would love to get together and talk if, if you have questions, if you have concerns. But in my life as a pastor, I've noticed there's a sharp distinction between, between people who come to you with an attitude of trust and say, listen, I, I just need your help in understanding your perspective, why this happened, give me some context and background, versus someone who comes with an attitude of suspicion and saying, well, you, why, why was it this way? There's a subtle, a huge difference, although it is subtle. See, the reality is, and you know this for those of you who are in leadership capacities, especially if you're in business or other organizations like this, there are certain things that when you're in leadership that you have information you know that simply other people don't. And there's a responsibility that you have in making decisions that other people don't have all of the information that you would have. And a humble person has an attitude of trust in their leadership, not a constant attitude of suspicion in why decisions or things are being made. Now, this is sometimes the hardest thing to do as a follower of Jesus within a church, is to humble ourselves and to trust decisions that were made, even if it's those that impact us, even if it's decisions that we would think should be done slightly differently. And I've experienced this too in my life. The church that I was at previous, um, I was asked by the elders to be considered to be their teaching pastor. And I was put through a long vetting process, was preaching regularly at the church. And after a year of this, the elders kind of came to me and said, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. Had a huge impact on my life. And it was one of the hardest things that I've had to do in my following of Jesus is to humble myself and to stay at that church for two and a half more years and serve there faithfully until God called me somewhere else. Did I disagree with their decision? Of course I did. Did, did, did I, did I, was I frustrated at times? Yes, but I had to get to the point where I said, these people are trying to honor and follow God. They may be broken just like me. They're not perfect, just like I'm not perfect, but they're trying to honor God. 
And I, and I realized I can trust them even if I don't necessarily wouldn't come to the exact same decision. So it takes humility to say, I can trust you even if I wouldn't have done it the exact same way. We're not saying you never ask questions. You're not saying you don't push back on anything, but a spirit of trust towards those who are in leadership. Third and lastly, uh, uh, an exercise of humility within the church is that you are someone who is dedicated in prayer for your church and for its leaders. That you are someone who's dedicated in prayer for your church and for its leaders. See, what does a person filled with pride pray for? They pray for themselves. They pray for their wants, their needs, what they need. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying for yourself. You should do that. Jesus tells us to do that. But a humble person looks beyond just their own needs and looks outwards and says, who, who else can I pray for? Who else needs prayer? Well, if you ever ask that question, who needs prayer? The church and its leaders desperately need prayer. We desperately need prayer. See, like you, we are broken, flawed people. But God has, for some reason, called us to the task of helping to lead this church to grow disciples who are here to help reach this South Valley towards Jesus. And it is my heart, it is our goal as a church that God would use this church in a way that could never be explained because of some human thing that happened, but only because his spirit has done a powerful work here. For God to do a powerful work in and through our church to see lives change as we celebrate it today in baptism. See, people come to know the gospel that only happens as the spirit is here and Jesus moves in a powerful way far beyond our capability or calling that only happens when God's people pray for it. And so pray for our church, pray for me, pray for our other pastors, pray for our elders. We are in desperate need of God in our lives to show us direction, to give us wisdom and guidance. We depend on him. And so one of the most humble things, but profound blessings you can be to myself and to all the pastors and all of this church is to be those who pray for us. This is what God has called us to as a church family. Leaders who strive, elders who want to lead like Jesus, looking not to their own, but to others. Those who lead with proper motives, not for selfish gain, but that Jesus would be known amongst the worlds. And for all of us to have this response of humility, setting aside our own desires, our own wants, and being humble, realizing who God is and what he's done for us. God, we do thank you for Jesus and for the difference that he has made in our lives. God, that of all people, we should be humble when we look at the cross, the magnitude of our sin, and the magnitude of your love and grace towards us. God, we do pray for this church. I thank you for the blessing that it has had for decades of godly leadership, men and women who are not perfect in any way, but who strive to know you and to see this church change lives through the power of the gospel. And God, we desperately cry that you would do that. God, that you would use the leaders of this church, the members, every single one of us, that you would use us to do something in Morgan Hill and Gilroy in the South Valley area that can only be attributed to the work of the Holy Spirit, that only could be attributed to Jesus doing something amazing. God, we desire for the gospel to go forth and to change lives. So would you use us to do that? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.